Let's open up Mark chapter 8. Read God's word this morning and then we'll pray and dive in to its teaching. This is the word of God. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, would you open our eyes to behold the wonderful things in your word? Jesus, you speak so clearly, so plainly here, but still we are often spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. Would you open our ears, open our eyes to behold this great truth that you are a suffering Messiah who came to be rejected, despised, crucified, and to rise again. Would you give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, and hearts and wills to follow you all the days of our life? And would that come through in this teaching now? In Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. There were a group of Dutch Christians during the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation happened around the 16th and 17th century. And these Dutch Christians were protesting against the church at that time because at that time it was illegal to own a Bible in your native language. Up to that point in church history, you could only get a Bible if it was in the original language of Greek and Hebrew or in Latin, which nobody spoke during the time. So it was illegal to own a Bible in your native language, but more than that, it was illegal to conduct worship services in your native language as well. So in order to worship, in order to hear and learn about Jesus in a language you could understand, Christians would gather early in the morning under the cloak of darkness in order to sing praises to Jesus, hear about the Bible, and grow closer in their relationship with him. But to do so, it would run the risk of arrest, so they always met early in the morning. So as this group of Dutch Christians was gathering one morning in the basement of a believer's house, they're singing out a final hymn, this final hymn about how good Jesus is. And then as they're finishing the last stanza, they hear a knock at the door. And they realize that it's the Dutch authorities. Every person that gathered that morning would be arrested 
Some would be thrown in prison and others of them would be executed by the state. And it really makes you wonder, who is, who is this Jesus that people would be willing to go undergo arrest, imprisonment, even execution, a martyr's death to learn more about him, just to worship him, just to sing to him. Who is this Jesus? Who is this man? Last week, you'll remember Mark kind of dropped the curtain on act one of his gospel. Remember we said Mark is like a play and in a play it has two acts. Act one last week, Mark dropped the curtain, brought it to a close. And now we're reading the second act of Mark's gospel. It's begun. And with this turn, with this transition in Mark's gospel, the whole feel, the whole mood of Mark's gospel begins to shift. Look again at verse 27. You notice this. This is actually repeated over and over again. Verse 27, Jesus, as he's with his disciples, he's going to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and we read, and on the way, he asked the disciples. That, that phrase, on the way, is repeated over and over and over again because Jesus, up to this point, he's been doing his ministry in and around the area of the Sea of Galilee. But now, Jesus is on a mission. He's on the way to Jerusalem. The shift has occurred. He's following this new path to Jerusalem. So that's one shift. But you see a second shift happen as well. In the first act, Jesus is performing these miracles. Jesus is teaching with authority and with power. And everyone is asking the same question. Who is this guy? Who are you, Jesus? What is your identity? But now as the curtain rises on the second act, Jesus turns the tables. Jesus begins to ask the questions and he says, no, wait, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's the question now. You guys probably watched the Super Bowl. You saw those commercials and they've been putting out a lot of these commercials of the He Gets Us campaign. Have you guys seen these? And they're these commercials that show that Jesus gets us. He gets what it's like to be a refugee. Jesus gets what it's like to be alone. Jesus gets what it's like to face criticism. Jesus gets what it's like to endure family conflict. And that's deeply important. Jesus gets us. But in this passage, Jesus is very concerned about something else. He is more concerned in this passage of this question, do you get him? Do you get Jesus? Who do you say that I am? It's the most important question that can be asked. You can gauge, you know, the, the importance of a question by the ramifications that come if you answer it incorrectly. Like, very low level, what do you want for breakfast this morning? Low ramifications, right? Answer incorrectly, you get a little bit of indigestion. Raise the stakes a little bit more. How about this question? Will you marry me? Answer that question wrong, you end up like my wife, Hannah. Right? The ramifications become very, very dire indeed. But how about this question? This question, who do you say that I am? Well, now the ramifications of that carry eternal ramifications, eternal consequences based on how you ask it and how you answer it. And that's Jesus' opening question in Act 2. He goes right for the heart of the question, who do you say that I am? Verses 27 through 30, you see, the disciples give an answer to this. 
Verse 27, Jesus begins on the way to Jerusalem by asking this question more in a general way. He doesn't ask specifically, he just asks it first in a general way. Jesus, on the way, asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? What do others say about me? What's the popular opinion? Surely you've heard rumors, so what do people say about me? Who do people say that I am? If you're to ask people popularly today, generally today, you can actually look at what people say. In 2022, this was just last year, Ipsos polling firm asked this very question in a general survey of the American population. 76% of Americans believe Jesus was an important historical figure. 84% of Americans believe Jesus was an important spiritual figure. 68% say that Jesus is an important figure in their daily life. Generally, that's how Americans understand Jesus, and that's how they would answer Jesus' question. Who do people say that I am? And it's a reasonable answer, isn't it? A majority of Americans would say, yeah, generally speaking, Jesus is an important spiritual figure who existed in history and plays an important role in my daily life. That's the general consensus, the popular opinion. But the popular opinion during Jesus' day, it was a little bit different. Look at verse 28. When Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? His disciples answered. They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. All three of these are generally reasonable answers. Think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a powerful teacher. Like Jesus, he attracted large crowds. He also, like Jesus, was not afraid to confront those who had religious and political power. He spoke truth to power regularly. In fact, that's the reason John the Baptist was executed and beheaded. John spoke out against the sexual immorality of a man named Herod, who was the tetrarch over the area of Galilee. Herod was in this adulterous relationship with his brother Philip's wife, whose name was Herodias. And because of that, John came condemning, with condemning words, saying, hey, you know what, Herod, you cannot live that way. That's condoning divorce. That's condoning sexual immorality. You're setting a bad example for the people of God. And because of that, because John was so visibly and demonstrably speaking truth to power, Herod cut off his head. So the thought was, Well, John the Baptist has been resurrected from the dead. And just like he spoke truth to power and gathered these great crowds and brought powerful teachings, that's what's going on in Jesus. It's as if John the Baptist has been resurrected from the dead. That's one answer. Reasonable. There was another answer. Well, maybe Jesus is like Elijah. Elijah was a prophet during one of the darkest times in Israel. He performed these great miracles. Elijah prayed for drought. And there was drought. He prayed for famine. There was famine. Elijah prayed that rain would come down on the land, and there was rain. There's this one scene in the Bible, in the book of 1 Kings, where Elijah is gathered around with hundreds, thousands of people in Israel who are all worshiping the false god Baal. And what Elijah says is, we're going to prove who the true God is here. So he says, I'm going to set up this offering on an altar. 
And you, prophets of Baal, call on your God to consume this offering that I placed on the altar. And so they're sitting there, hours and hours and hours pass by. Nothing happens. The sacrifice is still on the altar. Nothing. No voice from God. But then Elijah stands up. And he orders people to pour water all over this altar. Completely saturated with water. So, water, so much that it's, it's pooling around the altar. And Elijah says... If the true God exists, he will come down in fire and consume this offering. And what do you know? As soon as the words leave Elijah's lips, fire comes down from heaven. And it doesn't just consume the sacrifice. It consumes the altar and it consumes and laps up all the water that was underneath it. And people fell down in awe and wonder at the God of the Bible through the hands of Elijah the prophet. Maybe that's who Jesus is doing these great, powerful, miraculous works of God. Third option was, or maybe he's like one of the prophets, another prophet like the great prophets of old. There was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Jonah, Haggai. Maybe Jesus was another prophet. After all, God had not spoken to the people of God for over 400 years. After the last Old Testament prophet, whose name was Malachi, God went utterly silent for 400 years. The people of God had not heard a word from God for four centuries. Maybe God is finally speaking. Four centuries, is that right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe God is finally speaking again through Jesus of Nazareth. All three of these are reasonable answers. But as reasonable and respectable and as good as these answers sound, they all fall far short. None of these answers say enough. Look again at verse 28. Did you notice this? As the disciples are giving the popular opinion, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. There were many prophets. There are many people who have spoken for God. There's a long line of people who had God's power and authority with them in a special way. And that is a remarkable and a respectable thing, and it is a good thing to be called a prophet, but Jesus, in the general popular opinion, is just one among many, one in a long line of prophets. And even though being a prophet is a high honor, it doesn't say nearly enough. Because Jesus is not just one among many, no, he's one of a kind. Now think of this. Imagine you were to ask me, tell me about Hannah. What is she like? Who is Hannah? And if my answer to you was, my wife is a beautiful woman among many other beautiful women. Or if I were to say, she's not here, by the way. You can laugh, okay? <laughs> she is the last in the long line of women that I have loved. Would that be a compliment? No, that wouldn't be a compliment at all. In fact, that would be a profound insult. But that was essentially the general popular opinion during the time of Jesus. As good as it is that people can recognize Jesus as a prophet, as respectable as it sounds that he's a spiritual figure, as you know, reasonable and good as it is that he plays an influential role in people's life, none of these opinions say nearly enough, they are actually profoundly insulting. Most people in our culture, by the way, it's not that they think Jesus is nothing. They have somewhat of a high view of Jesus. The second largest religion in the world, Islam, 
refers to Jesus as Nabi Isa. That's Arabic for the Most High Prophet. Others not religiously inclined, when, when Jesus is mentioned, he's always mentioned in the same breath of some of the world's greatest figures, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, Abraham Lincoln, Peyton Manning, the greats, right? All at the top. That's who Jesus is. He is one among the greatest human beings to ever live. Our culture thinks very highly of Jesus, but it's not enough. Because Jesus is not one among many, he is one of a kind. There is no one like him. So Jesus moves from this general question, who do the people say that I am? And he starts to ask it very specifically. He, he looks at his disciples and he says, all right, now who do you say that I am? It's verse 29. Who do you say that I am? And remember, up to this point, the disciples they have witnessed Jesus' miracles. They've heard his teaching. They followed him probably at this point in the gospel for over a year. So they've been with Jesus for some time. And in spite of all that, over and over and over again, through the first act of Mark's gospel, they just don't connect the dots around who Jesus is. They completely miss him. But here, there's a shift that happens. Peter finally sees the connection. He finally seems to be putting some of the dots together. He's finally seeing clearly and answering for all the disciples, Peter confesses. It says that Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You see, Elijah and John the Baptist and every other prophet that was in between spoke about a day when God would send a king, a Messiah, a Christ, who would be the true king of heaven and earth, a king who would finally eliminate sin and darkness, suffering and pain. In other words, this Christ would be the one to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to bring the glory of God on earth. And Peter says, Jesus, you are not just a prophet who speaks about the Christ like all the prophets of old. Jesus, you are the Christ, the true king of heaven and earth. You are the one the prophet Jeremiah spoke about. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Jeremiah spoke about the Christ to come, this promise from God. He said, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's who you are, Jesus. You're the one Daniel saw in the great vision of this coming triumphant Messiah. When Daniel saw in the night visions and he said, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an eternal one, an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Isaiah spoke about you. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born. This is you, Jesus. 
To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called. Everybody knows the Amy Grant song, right? Sing along with me. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's who you are, Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the true king of heaven and earth, the one who will finally bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, the one who will finally bring glory to the people of God now. The disciples are starting to connect the dots. They're finally starting to connect who Jesus is to the Old Testament scriptures. But then Jesus does something so weird, and he always does stuff like this. Jesus does something so surprising and weird. Verse 30, after Jesus answers correctly, we read, verse 30, Jesus then strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why would he do that? They're finally getting it. Why keep your identity secret? The the secret's out. You're the Christ. Why are you telling them not to tell anybody about it? Well, the answer is actually quite simple because even though Peter and the rest of the disciples are finally starting to connect the dots, they don't understand what being the Christ actually means. They don't understand what it actually entails. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, Right, it starts out that Russell Crowe is a slave and he's sold to a person to be a gladiator, to fight for his life. And it starts out that he's a nobody, but every person that they put in front of him, he conquers, he destroys. And he goes from strength to strength, destroying everyone who stands in his way. He gathers a group of people around him and they finally lead up to this ultimate battle where eventually he even overthrows the king and the emperor of Rome himself. And then he says that great line, right? What we do in this life echoes into eternity. And you just want to jump into the scream and fight with him, right? Great movie. That's how the disciples thought about the Messiah. That that was the picture that they had. This Christ is going to go from strength to strength On the way to Jerusalem, he's going to destroy God's enemies, eliminate the sinful and the unrighteous, and God's kingdom will come on earth with political and military power. The disciples thought they would follow Jesus into Jerusalem to receive honor and glory and fame as Jesus brought political and military might to bear on the Roman Empire. That was the popular view during the time that Jesus was around. In fact, 60 years before Jesus was born, popular writings started envisioning what it would look like when the Christ came. This is one writing. They write, O Lord, raise up their king, the son of David. Gird him with strength that he might shatter unrighteous rulers, that he might purge Jerusalem from wicked nations. Wisely, righteously, he shall thrust out sinners from the inheritance. He shall destroy the pride of the sinner. He shall destroy the godless nation. And he shall not allow unrighteousness to lodge any more in their midst. Strength to strength, shattering the unrighteous, destroying sinners and the ungodly through military and political power. That's what was expected. And we have to be honest that many of us expect... Today, in our circles, we tend to be evangelical, 
more conservative in our theology, we believe that God's kingdom will often come in the same way through political, cultural, economic, and a social agenda now. Because of that, political cycles come and go, and every political and social issue takes on ultimate significance. You hear people saying, this is the most important election of our lifetime, of course, until the next one comes, right? And because of that, every vote, Every piece of legislation, every judicial case, every Supreme Court appointment, every candidate take on ultimate significance because there is this underlying belief that God's kingdom will not only come on earth, will only come on earth through political, cultural, and social platforms. God's kingdom will come through our political savvy, through our political might. And really... The only difference between them then, the disciples then, and us now, is at least the disciples then thought it was the Christ who was going to bring God's kingdom on earth, whereas we think that's our mission, our objective. Underlying this belief is that Christ is a political Christ, a Christ of cultural influence here and now. God bringing his glory our comfort here and now. And it's for that reason, Jesus strictly charges them, don't tell anybody about me. That's not what I've come to do. That's not what being the Christ entails, at least not yet. So after Peter's confession, after he strictly charges them, tell no one about me, Jesus begins to teach them and instruct them plainly what it means for him to be the Christ. He starts correcting their false view. He tells them he's not come to bring glory here and now, but in verses 31 through 33, he teaches them that he's not a political Christ, he's a suffering Christ. Verse 31, and Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, huh? You realize how weird this would have been. This would have been like saying that the Messiah is coming to suffer. That would have been like saying, hey, I want to introduce you to my mom. She has no kids. It would have made no sense. The disciples thought Christ would come to reject the unrighteous. Now he's saying he's got to go to Jerusalem to be rejected by the unrighteous. The thought was that Jesus would destroy God's enemy in power. Jesus says, no, I must be destroyed. I must be killed by my enemies, by the political powers. I must be crushed. They thought he was on the way to Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom politically through earthly power. But Jesus says plainly, no, I've come to establish God's kingdom through suffering, through crucifixion. Jesus says, I'm a suffering Christ. I'm a suffering Christ. The disciples wanted a political Christ bringing political glory and power. Now Jesus says, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed and rise again. Do you ever wonder why Jesus uses that word must? Look at, that, look at it again in verse 31. He says it very clearly. He says that he must, the son of man must suffer many things. Why must he do that? And again, the reason is actually quite simple. The reason the Christ must go on the way to Jerusalem to die is because if he does not, then no human person will be forgiven of their sins and no person will inherit the glory of God and his kingdom eternally. 
See, what the disciples failed to understand is they thought Jesus was this political Messiah who would destroy the unrighteous, who they thought were Gentile nations not like them. What they didn't realize is if that God was going to come in judgment, if the Christ was going to bring his kingdom in power, it would mean that the unrighteous would be destroyed and they were equally as unrighteous as their Gentile neighbors. They didn't realize that they were unrighteous and if God was to bring his kingdom in power, they would be destroyed under the weight of his judgment because the punishment for sin before almighty God is death. And if Jesus was to bring anyone anyone into God's eternal kingdom, it would be necessary for him to make full payment and satisfaction for their sin by dying in their place as a sacrifice. The Christ must suffer as a sacrifice for our sins. There's no other way to enter God's kingdom. I was actually in a conversation this last week with a person online, and this person had written an article addressing this very thing. And in the article, they wrote, quote, Jesus' death is not needed to forgive sins because God does not need sacrifices. This traditional Christian view of sacrifice is so pervasive that it obscures other possibilities. Jesus' crucifixion for the forgiveness of sins may be an ancient sacrificial ritual, but it is not a requirement for an all-powerful, all-loving God. If God wants to forgive, he can just forgive. No sacrifice is necessary. And because I have nothing better to do with my life, I responded. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was reading, I was reading these passages in preparation for this sermon, and I, I said, no, 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 you don't understand. He must suffer. Must. He must be rejected. He must die. He must be killed. He says in other places that without the sacrifice, there is no forgiveness of sins. Later on, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus makes it clear. I have not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many that they might be freed from their captivity to sin. Without Jesus' blood shed and body given, no person can stand before God. We need a sacrifice. And this man responded back. Those scriptures limit God's love and power to forgive and have been tainted by the hand of man. And so I responded back. <laughs> and back and forth we went all week, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We're in keyboard warfare. This went on for an entire week. I, I think I convinced him. <laughs> you can't escape what Jesus says here. The son of man must Suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. He must lay down his life for the sins of the world. If Jesus doesn't, then there can be no forgiveness of sin and no person can inherit the kingdom of God. Cross first, glory later. Cross in this life, glory in the life to come. So don't you see why Jesus is so much more and must be so much more than a prophet. Why Jesus must be more than an important historical figure or spiritual figure or an important person in your daily life, which is the general popular opinion. Jesus must either be Christ, one of a kind, the king of heaven and earth who suffered and died as a sacrifice for your sins, or he is nothing else. Anything less than that is profoundly insulting. 
As respectable as it sounds to call Jesus a a prophet, none of these popular opinions say nearly enough, and they are not compliments. They are profoundly insulting because this Christ came to suffer, to be a sacrifice for your sins, to embrace the cross so that you one day might experience glory. This is why Jesus is so very concerned that we get him. Because if you don't see him as the Christ, the king who suffered, laying down his life for your sins, then you will die in your sins. There's no more important question than this. Who do you say that I am? Look again at verse 32. Peter, again, he doesn't doesn't know what to do with this. He doesn't know what to do with this. Before it seemed like Peter was connecting the dots. He's finally beginning to understand. He has this idea of a suffering Christ. This, this, this idea just doesn't compute for him. He's kind of like my kids when they're doing the connect the dot drawings. They can only count up to 30, my three-year-old. So, you know, they get to 30 and then they go to 72 and then they go to 24 and then they go to 81. And you look at it and you're like, well, that's like half of an elephant, right? You kind of get it. That's what Peter is like here. He's connecting the jots. Jesus is the Christ. He's the king, but he doesn't understand this idea that he's supposed to be a suffering Christ. So verse 32, what does Jesus do? Peter took him aside, Jesus that is, and began to rebuke him. That's not what's supposed to happen, Jesus. No, no, no. You're the Christ. You're the king. You're on your way to Jerusalem to conquer, to come in glory, not to suffer and die. You're going to receive fame and honor and power and might. At this point, Dick Lucas, who's a biblical commentator, he says, Peter pulls Jesus aside here to explain the Old Testament to Jesus. (laughs) Never a good idea, by the way. (laughs) Don't start doing that. But, But look, Jesus... Jeremiah 23, right? The days are coming, declares the Lord. You're you're the righteous branch of David. You're going to reign as king, deal wisely, execute justice and righteousness in the land. Don't you know about Daniel? Daniel? Daniel chapter 7, Jesus? You're the one coming on the clouds like the Son of Man to to go before the Ancient of Days, to be presented before Him. You've been given dominion and glory and a kingdom. It's an everlasting dominion. That's who you are, Jesus. Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, you're the child who's been born. The son that's been given, the government's going to be on your shoulders, Jesus. Then you can imagine Jesus saying, Peter, okay, you're you're in Isaiah chapter (laughs) 9. Flip forward. Keep going. What does Isaiah chapter 53 have to say? Because there it's talking about the Messiah, and it's, it's equally clear, Peter. This Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. See, Peter, you haven't connected all the dots. Am I the Christ? Yes. Am I the king of heaven and earth? Yes. But I am the king who has come first to be despised and rejected by men. I am the king who came first to be pierced for your transgressions, to be crushed for your sins, to be a sacrifice of atonement so that you can enter into glory. Cross first, then glory. Cross in this world, glory in the world to come. See, what the disciples wanted, they wanted their political gain now. They, they wanted their cultural agenda now. They wanted their version of glory now. They wanted to go on the way to Jerusalem and conquer now. And Jesus simply says, cross in this world, glory in the world to come. So much for the Old Testament explanation by Peter, huh? So what does Jesus do in response to Peter's rebuke? Verse 33. You see that after Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. This is not a good day for Peter. <laughs> Peter's seen better days. Peter's kind of like the Titanic here, right? Unsinkable ship. Jesus, you're the Christ. I'm getting it too. I'm going to rebuke Jesus too. Uh oh, now we're going down. Jesus just called me Satan. Not a good look. I thought I was connecting the dots now. I'm just not sure, Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus makes it plain, though. Peter, here's the reason you're not connecting the dots. Here's what your problem is. He says, Peter, verse 33, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Friends, if you're looking for Jesus to advance your political agenda... If you're looking to Jesus to give you your best life now, if you're looking to Jesus to defeat your enemies and condemn your culture war opponents, if you're looking to Jesus to give his stamp of approval on your political ideology, if you expect Jesus to be your voice to bring back a better America, if you are looking to Jesus to be your advocate in the culture war, if you're looking to Jesus to bring his glory and kingdom through anything other than a cross, whether it be through the United States Constitution or through a particular economic system, you are not setting your mind on the things of God. You are setting your mind on the things of man. Simple and plain, just like Peter and the disciples you're not connecting the dots. You're looking for a different kind of Christ, a Christ who will bring glory now, not a Christ with a cross. There's a theologian, his name was Richard Niebuhr, and he was writing during the early 20th century, and he said this was the mindset, this was the constant mindset of Protestant liberals, and this is theological liberals, not cultural or political liberals, but theological liberals. He said this is this is the defining feature of Protestant liberalism is that they want a Christ without a cross. They want Christ to bring his kingdom politically, cultural, to, tra to transform everything in America to more reflect the kingdom of God. And Niebuhr put it very clear. He said that God doesn't exist. What they want is a God without wrath who brings men without sin 
into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. But that Christ does not exist. Cross in this world, glory in the world to come. First cross, then glory. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I have to imagine here, as as we close, Jesus wanted to slow down because he wants his disciples to know the path he's walking on the way to Jerusalem is that same path that his followers will have to walk. Just as the cross comes before glory for Jesus, so too the cross will come before glory for his followers. So Jesus says very plainly, verse 34, Jesus says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says, this is the way of the kingdom of God. This is the way of the Messiah. And it was just as countercultural then as it is today. In fact, it might even be more countercultural today. Do you mean to say, Jesus, that God doesn't want me to live prosperously and, you know, perfectly now? He doesn't want my self-fulfillment now? That's countercultural. In fact, UCLA, they just came out with a study or just re-released a study. They started it in 1967, and it was studying the values of children's TV shows and the values that they communicate to children. Well, in 1967, the top five values were things like kindness, charity, compassion, community, self-forgetfulness. That study was redone again, 2017, and the top three were fame, image, and popularity. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, politically, socially, economically, culturally, and gain all worldly power and influence and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory. Jesus says the path he's walking on the way to Jerusalem, it's the path of the cross. It's the same path path that you will walk if you follow him. Crossed first, then glory. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You know, when I'm teaching our kids, my wife Hannah and I, when we teach our kids to follow, or sorry, ride a bike, we found out that it's actually really difficult to have them learn by standing behind them. And if you're just trying to like ease them along or hold up the bike, what they do is their eyes start wandering and they start getting really afraid. They, their, their courage starts to fail them. You know, they'll be looking down and they'll see the tire spinning so they'll put their feet down. Or, you know, they'll look, a, look around and they'll see the oncoming cars coming at them because we do it on Wadsworth, right? Because it's sink or swim in our family. You either learn to ride a bike or you don't, right? So... They'll be doing this, and the second that they, they, they realize, oh, something's not going right, they'll put their feet down. So what do I do? We go in front of them, and we play follow the leader, and we sing, follow the leader, follow, follow me. Come on, now you guys get the second one, ready? No, if they follow you, then they can do it. If they follow you, they can ride their bike. As long 
as Jesus goes before his disciples, they can have the courage to know, I can follow this man. I can follow the way of the cross because it's cross now, glory later. Jesus must suffer, but he also must rise again. But rising again comes after the bitter cross. To follow the Christ means that his path on the way to Jerusalem will be our path if we follow him. It's not a path of glory now. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's not a path of social, cultural, political acceptance and influence now. For whoever would save his life will lose it. To follow the Christ means we follow a suffering Christ, this one-of-a-kind Christ who bore a cross, a Christ rejected for his teaching, rejected by the world, rejected and scorned. And if we follow him, we can expect the same. Cross now, glory later. I was watching one of those Senate confirmation hearings. There was a man who was put up for a position in the Office of Management and Budget. His name is Russ Vogt. And he was put up for this position, but as the Senate was kind of digging into his past, they found a blog post that he had posted 10 years earlier for his alma mater, defending Jesus' statement that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to heaven except through me. Christ, through his cross, is the only way to eternal life. And during the Senate confirmation hearing, one senator turned to him and said, in my view, the statement made by Mr. Vogt is indefensible. It is hateful. It is religiously intolerant, and it is an insult to billions of people with different faiths throughout the world. And the senator would conclude by saying, this country, since its inception, has struggled, sometimes with great pain, to overcome discrimination of all forms. We must not go backwards. This man is unfit for this position. But we shouldn't expect anything else. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. If Jesus was respected for his te- rejected for his teaching, should we not expect the same? So I was watching these Senate confirmation hearings. This hymn from Henry Light came into my mind. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, you from hence my all shall be. Perish every glorious ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me, they have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me, you God are not like them untrue. Man may trouble and distress me, it will drive me to your breast. Life and trials hard may press me, but heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Who do you say that Jesus is? The answer to that question has eternal ramifications because there's only one answer. Jesus is not one among many. He's one and only. He's one of a kind. He is the suffering Christ who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. First cross, then glory. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy of all glory, honor, power. You are worthy of all fame, reputation, worship, and adoration. 
Yet, Jesus, you came to be despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, to be acquainted with grief. You, were, you came to earth first to be one as whom men hide their face, to be despised and esteemed not. And Jesus, we want to take up our crosses. We do. We want to follow you. We need the strength to do it. We thank you that you give us the grace and the mercy to follow you each day. Would you, Jesus, never let us go from your grip? Help us bear the crosses that you place in our life and help us know that even though the cross comes first, you promise eternal glory, eternal riches, eternal fame and honor when you bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven.